0: The History of Personal Computing History 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 Of Personal Computing The History Personal computing.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the show. I hope all of you are already on your way to having a fine New Year this year. How's it going, David?
0: What are the traditions in your household for a lucky New Year? You know, we don't really have any. When I was reading our little script here, I was like, you know, I guess we don't really do anything special. And I remember on New Year's Eve, well, after it turned New Year's, you know, they always show all these clips from all around the world. And... I think it was people in the philippines i thought it was interesting that they uh they open every door and window in their house <laughs> but okay, let any, let any off, yeah let off bad year bringing the good news something like that bad spirits or something but now nah, we, we had we, we had a very nice new year very quiet and and i was happy with that so just you know nothing special just family together you know quiet <laughs> i like quiet
1: yeah me too it's kind of how it was for me it, it in Pennsylvania, Dutch country, here, the, the tradition is pork and sauerkraut. Yeah. I had bacon, and, but I didn't have any sauerkraut. <laughs> do you like sauerkraut? I do. I mean, it's not a favorite thing, but you, you know, pork tr- sauerkraut is actually pretty good.
0: And of course, sauerkraut's really like very regional in Germany. It's not like every German likes sauerkraut. Oh, really? Like, okay. That's what we learned anyway when we lived there. And the so area like we the lived whole, in, that the it, it, it was
1: pizza of of sauerkraut, right? <laughs> yeah, it wasn't popular. doesn't like it, but you know, and pineapple on pizza? Oh yeah, we'll put pineapple on sauerkraut. <laughs> yeah. Actually, that might not be all that bad. So you kind of get that sweet and savory taste. But hey, it's yeah, you know, we start a new tradition. So is it like like seriously cold there right now? Cold. I can count the temperature on my fingers.
0: Yeah. Okay. Because it's all over the northeast, I think. Right pretty much yeah we got a big big serving of arctic here
1: i'm gonna blame carrington for sending it down from toronto
0: yeah so it that's it's free i mean for atlanta georgia it's like like i think it was 11 degrees you know it's eight degrees so for him
1: eight degrees is probably around 40 yeah or 45 (laughs) Yeah.
0: So this is like seriously cold. This is like freak people out cold. Here. It
1: is. It's it's so cold that even I, I can tell my car. The suspension just feels stiff because everything's kind of, you know, wet from the snow and stuff and frozen. It just when it's really this cold, yeah, your car seems to feel it, <laughs> and and you can feel it in the car. It's like, and
0: you have a lot of snow on the ground. We had three inches. Wow. Uh, so of course that we don't have that here, but and it's never funny. Melted,
1: so it was fluffy three inches. It was really easy to get rid
0: of, but uh-huh. it just came, went, stayed cold. It was uh, the one time I went out to pick up lunch. I looked out the window of my office, um, you know, my work, and um, and it was nice and clear, and the sun had come out. So you know, then they actually go outside. It was like shocking how really cold it was. Of course, it was warmer than it at night. It, you know, it wasn't. I think it was probably 30 something at that point. So that wasn't so crazy cold. But like right now outside, it's ridiculous. But it looked like it's still a nice, you know, Georgia day.
1: It's it's deceiving. Although we expect snow on the ground around this time. We don't always get it, but we expect it. But yeah, it's still even cold for us.
0: I don't know if it'll snow here this year. So it snowed. Big time, well, big time for us last year, and, and it didn't for two years before that. That's sort of the cycle that it seems like it, it might, you know, do it again. Yeah, one good time, good time snow for us. Snow is a
1: treat. Meanwhile, we get, we get snow, and sometimes cars just pile up on the highway.
0: <laughs> that happened here, if you remember in the news. I don't know if you remember that. Do you remember seeing that in imagine, the news?
1: I can imagine it does, because uh, your area's not really as equipped to handle snows, and honestly, the driver's probably
0: not well-equipped to handle the snows. Oh, yeah. It was bad. So there's a lot of panic. So now we covered the weather. We're like every other podcast. All right. Now we're good. Now for sports.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Wait, that's not going to happen here, <laughs> unless it's hardball from Accolade.
0: But that might be on a future podcast. Anyway, what's new with you? So other than talking about how cold it is, pretty much life is just back to normal. Oh, just more on my little musical sketch I've been talking about. So that's been my, uh, you know, we had the holidays and, uh, you know, at work, things kind of get real slow and a lot of people aren't around and stuff. So, you know, we wrapped it all up like the 19th or 20th, actually filming it and recording some people. And then this week I've been busy re-recording different people at the office for some of the different segments. So if the audio isn't as good on the film, you know, the video, then hopefully my more, you know, quote unquote studio version we can put in there and it'll be good so i'm all done now
1: editing tricks right
0: yeah so because i'm really trying to make it i'm really trying to make it as good as it can be yeah i'm really excited about it i'm not i don't expect it to be perfect but um you know i want it to be as good as it can be but especially it it, you know people singing and stuff it's like the audio really needs to be good quality i think something's worth doing it's worth doing well Exactly. So I should hear something next week. I should be able to finally get a look at it. And,
1: next week, and you send the film off to the developers, and they come back, and you check the reel, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. It's being processed. That's right. So hey, What's McCullough. new with you? Well, uh, it is January, so that means the retro challenge is out. Oh, yeah, when does that start? It starts January 1st. Oh, it did. And it's January 31st, and then they have a July 1st and July 3rd. 31st the winter warm-up so it's, right it's biannual yeah this is the winter warm-up um, basically the retro challenge is an informal contest where people use retro computers for whatever purpose they desire for an entire month even though it's more of a personal challenge than a contest you know they do issue prizes and the prizes might be used vintage computers uh, there's nothing fancy Um and those prizes are awarded more on the impact and creativity of an entry rather than its completeness. Now, I don't expect to win any prizes, but my entry is, and I talked about on the last show, how I got into this new Elite game Mm -hmm. that's out. Well, it started out on the Commodore 64, uh, or it started out back in the 80s, so I'm using it as an excuse to play the original Elite on a Commodore 64 um, and seeing how... trying to remember how all that played and stuff and how it compares to the new version. So for me, it's not, I'm not going to create anything new from it, but I'm, it's just an excuse to use it during the month of, uh, uh, January as if I really need an excuse to play
0: around with vintage computers. I finally found the webpage here.
1: Yes. We'll have to put that link in the show notes for anybody who's interested in doing this stuff twice a year. Uh, this person does it and it's just, it's just for fun, but you may learn a few things like some of the previous ones. People really were down and dirty into hardware, redesigning stuff and modernizing it or interfacing new hardware with old hardware. It's, it's endless. It's just, it's just a fun event. Now, the other thing that happened to me just recently is, um, had some of my, uh, vintage collection get wet.
0: Oh no, really?
1: The, um the thermal expansion tank for my hot water heater decided to bust a leak. Uh, very, very tiny pinhole that produced enough pressure. And this pinhole is so small you couldn't even fit a pin in it. Um, but it produced a water stream under such pressure that it sprayed across into a, um, a shelving set that I had that had some books and created a slow building cascading waterfall down through the shelves and down through books that I had. Um, oh, man. And, and, and some Commodore disk drives and stuff. The books, well, I dried most of them out. The pages are get all that wrinkly stuff. I'll just put them under 50 pounds of pressure for a couple months, see if it becomes flat. But I, those, mostly what got damaged were uh, some books on Clarisworks for Apple II uh-huh. and the image writer manual, which was, it was in good shape um, and a, um, an Apple color monitor for the Apple II oh, i 'm sorry the Apple um, was it macintosh lc whatever that co- color monitor was at the time, I forget the name of it, so that book got a little messed up and, and and a complete guide to Amiga dos in its in its cardboard case that got wet too. The hardware I can probably flush that with um. Uh, distilled water in a in a fresh spray bottle, clean off any contaminants, and get that working again. But unfortunately, I just got to take the time to do that. Yeah. So, you know I replaced the tank, and everything's looking good so far. So. You don't uh, ever use like
0: uh, alcohol, right? I I could. You could um, spray alcohol I've, I've on actually, it
1: too. I've actually witnessed somebody get spilled coffee on their two-way radio. Yeah. In, in a vehicle, and he cleaned it by taking three small tubs. And filled them with distilled water and did a like a barroom dunk type thing you know, the barkeeper's dunk he just dunked it, the, the whole radio as it's just in you know he took the outer covers off but he just dunked it in the one shook it up put it in the next one the next one with for a final rinse and let it dry for a few days
0: and it worked just great afterwards oh he didn't like take it apart though to let it dry he just
1: took the outer cover off like, it, you know, the, the two-way radio, it's like a CB radio in a way, but it's actually ham radio. Yeah. He took the top and bottom cover off, exposed the internals, you know, LCD display in place and everything. He just dunked it. Yeah. And let it, and it shook it out, let it dry. And it, and it worked.
0: Yeah. So,
1: you know, distilled water is, is pure, so it's not going to leave any contaminants. It'll wash it off. Right. But I can still do the alcohol, too, or, you know, get some better... You know, cleaners, industrial strength, um, like, workshop cleaners for, like, electronics workbenches and stuff. But that'll cost a little extra money. It's 1541 drive, the Commodore 1541 drives. Those I had a stack of those that got wet. I don't expect them to be damaged. I just have to clean them out before I power them up because the water could have contaminants in it that dried. Yeah. But... It was a bit depressing because <laughs> I was on vacation for a while, and the whole time I was on vacation, nothing happened. But the day I go back to work, right, my, right, my, my kids say, "Hey, there's water on the floor in the basement," and that's where it came from. Yeah. Anyway, so that's that's bad news. You know, some collectors out there are probably cringing a little bit, but hey, it happens. It's not bad. I just I get over it and you move on, and start putting everything in plastic cases.
0: At least it's better even having it's, the hot water heater out in the garage. <laughs> uh,
1: the distance I had to go, it just—it was just enough water pressure to spray it that far to start something out. I didn't even expect it to get wet, but there it is. So we uh, have feedback. We do. Good feedback. Uh, this particular feedback, we did not get onto a previous episode. We had it before, but we didn't. We didn't record it. Uh, Richard Gordon wrote to us via email, and I'll quote, Thanks for all the great content, not just with this show, but with all the other works as well. I drive a tractor trailer for a living, 2,800 miles a week. Wow! Yeesh. And shows like this keep me occupied going down the road, end quote. Nice. That, that's great to hear that we're helping keep people company. That's what I like to do on long, long trips is fire up podcasts and listen to them. Richard also mentioned an ad that he saw on QTH.com, which is a ham radio uh, website, that there was an Altair 8800B for sale for $1,395. Uh, checking now, it appears that the ad is still active on that website. Yeah, it sure is. So well, That's a nice one. Somebody. He, ha- he also sent the, the link to um, Earl Evans, too, just in case he might be interested, so might be a, a fight or a race to get it, although we've had this email for, uh, I'd say, almost a month. Uh, and it looks like it's still going. It doesn't say where it is, does it? Um, does it? I don't think. Let's see. It's, uh. well, let's see. Submitted from, and it gives the um, domain name for it. It looks like it's in Massachusetts. Oh. If, I'm, if I'm reading the submitted from line, it's the... Uh, HSD1.MA.COM. Oh yeah, it. I
0: see. Oh, if so, you click
1: on Was Was Wellesley Hills, Wellesley Hills. Okay, or or somewhere around that area. So it's in yeah. Massachusetts. It's, it's, it's keeping okay. it's keeping preserved in the cold right now. So you could go pick it up. I could <laughs> actually. You know what? I was in Massachusetts not too long ago. Had I known about this, I could at least stop see? by and say hi to it. You could have stayed in a cheaper <laughs> hotel and picked this up that's right <laughs> yeah forget the hot tub right you
0: know, i have an out there and a room with bugs in it. <laughs> okay do you want me to take the next one yeah go ahead um so this is from uh joseph you i think you want to say XU. Is that so how you say it do i thought or shoe okay well, well you know we're good at butchering last name so let's just joseph um XU is the last name and says so, sorry joseph but he also emailed us With some positive feedback and he writes i just stumbled on your website and podcast and i'm enjoying it a lot this was a recent one right yes uh thanks for all of your effort and sharing your knowledge and he also asked if we could record a video version simultaneously as we record because it is perceived that we are commenting on some of the show note links and other new discoveries as we are discussing them yeah (laughs) this may give (laughs) listeners an option to follow along in some cases we do not We do discuss more than what we have on our recording notes, but it's not consistent. Okay, so this is us (laughs) commenting. Yeah, this is is our response. (laughs) Yeah, so we found that recording video can create a load on the computer, which will have a detrimental effect on the sound quality. Yeah, and of course, when I was on the Retro Computing Roundtable, for quite a while, we were doing that. We were streaming onto YouTube live, and it was fun. And um, we had a pretty dedicated... You know, dozen people that would always tune in, but that's kind of where it ended. We just found that there wasn't enough demand for it and it did and it did actually um lower the quality of the audio and maybe there's other ways around it and sometimes
1: a video did the same thing,
0: yeah, but you know it just it it lessened the experience for the large majority of our of our uh audience, which were listeners but this is an know, for idea a very for small... small
1: for content on the website,
0: yeah, um, I think we
1: can do record we can record. In the future, we could probably record things that you can do with your computer, so here's, you know... I think Instagram we ought to try it
0: sometime, because um, yeah. like the Retro MacCast, who's been on for a long time, they've done, they haven't done one in a while, but they've done a few over the years, specials, and they did a video. And you was, wanted me to demonstrate some um, uh, emulation. Yeah, well, there you go, All right, we were talking about that. And that, that is the perfect, you know, that would be perfect reason to do it, in fact. Yeah, well, there you go. Oh. We should do an emulation show, and and then we start a series of that going forward. Yeah. You know, Joseph gave us a good suggestion there, and we appreciate that. But you know, now you know why we
1: probably couldn't do that and still you know maintain the quality that we hope we are putting out in this
0: on this show. And he also mentioned that he had an issue subscribing to our podcast. Apparently, some of the podcatcher software out there finds more than one variation of link to the history of personal computing podcast using their built-in search features. Hopefully we have that issue all worked out now. But to anybody listening to this podcast for the first time, we will always have the proper RSS feed link on the History of Personal Computing website. So if you have any problems or just make that a starting point, go to historyofpersonalcomputing.com and click on the RSS feed link on the right-hand side of the page. The link will also be included on the show notes of the podcast. So, and also if you haven't been updated in a while or think you have, then just uh, you know delete it from your iTunes or podcatching software and, or Yeah, we... iTunes
1: looks like it picked it up just fine it's it's showing up all the latest episodes okay it does and for the, me and the I've... new link has it but I, I think what happened is the original link got caught in a search and it hasn't been expunged uh, there might be some more efforts that you know we need to put into that or I can you know put into that to help erase that from these search engines yeah okay Maybe the threat of a lawsuit. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take the next one. The most recent email I received came from Wade Ripkowski, who runs Inverse Itaski, an Atari 8-bit productivity podcast. One I don't think I've ever heard before, but it's cool to know that there's one out there. And that can be found at InverseItaski.info, which we'll put a link in the show notes for that. And he says... Just listen to both holiday episodes. Great stuff. I enjoy listening.
0: Next time you're going to be in the Greenville, South Carolina area, let me know. It's my stomping grounds. Hey, and I was just in Greenville, South Carolina very briefly. Remember I spoke, I went and picked up a bunch of stuff. That's right. Yeah, in the last show. The closest I've been to Greenville was uh, Columbia, South Carolina
1: when I was in basic training.
0: And And again... (laughs) To anybody listening, which I imagine probably most people that are listening to this show probably did listen to the last show, but if you haven't listened to the holiday special, you really should listen to it, even after the fact now, because it was great. Yeah, we got some good feedback on that on Facebook. We received a number of thumbs up for the holiday special, so... Yeah, it was you know, really it good, wasn't it? It appears I mean, to be just...
1: confirmation that the episode was enjoyable.
0: Yeah, I'm really proud of that. I think that, that was just a great, a great feature. And then we did that little extra bonus stuff. Which was yeah, good, no.
1: <laughs> huh? All right, no, because we uh we it just got it got a, away from us, and we just needed to split that up.
0: Yeah, because what did it turn out to be? Like I said, it was it was it would have been like almost clo- pulling you know close to two hours if we had left it all together.
1: Or yeah, or maybe um, one hundred and fifty miles, you know, for yeah. <laughs> for Richard.
0: <laughs> so I think we did a good thing. Yeah. Then it was just bonus content. Oh, and like, speaking of that, I still yes. have not listened to the. And televisionaries right am i saying it right you didn't because i didn't say it right oh no i no, did didn't
1: listen to it you did say it. Right. oh no
0: i haven't listened to it yet i, I kind of i meant to i tweeted about it and i saw oh they put out their. they did put out theirs where they also did the holiday stories and then i meant to, to get it and start listening to it and i haven't yet but i really want to do that so i'm just saying that out loud have yeah, you I, have a,
1: I, have a, I didn't listen to it either i have a cute i have it queued up See? so i'm just kind of going through um everything because I was on vacation for a while, I really didn't listen to any podcasts. I was too busy playing Elite and, <laughs> and cleaning up my game room and stuff. Um, so that's how I spent my vacation time. Nice. But now that I'm on my daily commute, I'm catching up on all these
0: podcasts. I'm, you know, several episodes behind on a bunch of them. I actually cleaned up a bunch, too. I'm very proud of that. My office floor here is cleaned up now, which is nice. I, <sighs> I have sip my drink now when I'm recording this.
1: There used to be an old remote control, an old Zenith clicker remote control. In the way? In the way, yeah. I (laughs) I didn't want to move it because it looked so nice, but I finally found a place for it. Yeah, right underneath the uh, hot water heater. Um, (laughs) Anyway, so let's get on to the show here. Our podcast is your bi-weekly guide in both audio and on the web to the history and development of arguably the single most important technological advancement of the last 40 years, the personal computer. But just what is a personal computer these days? That's a good question, as
0: it continues to evolve, so we're covering the significant devices here, one by one. We wanted to create a unique new podcast about old computers and their history, so we generally discuss them in a date order within tiers. And tiers are in reference to the tiers of personal computing, which have evolved some in the last few years. In the past, they have been the desktop, then the laptop, and then the smartphone, or handheld, and so on which became smartphones, though now they are mostly characterized by the laptop, tablet, and smartphone. In each episode, we typically cover two systems, plus highlight-related eBay auctions to gauge current values and collectability. We approach each system
1: like that of a museum tour guide. First, we give you the basics of the system, along with its history, just like a placard for physical museum displays. Then we further elaborate, giving you more detail of the stories which bring the computers back to life. This podcast supplements the blog, and our blog adds value to the podcast. So please visit it at
0: historyofpersonalcomputing.com. I don't know. Are we giving more detail as we've been moving more and more I hope shows so. you think? I think we're, yeah. And I think, you know, we're f- formulating our uh, format. Is that right? <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> Better. Uh, we're, we're so we're still, we're kind of, yeah. Kind of getting in the
1: groove, evolving like, how we're, yeah. yeah riding the track a little bit better.
0: I was going to mention real quick for we, now it's, it's time. We need to jump into the meat of the episode. But just earlier, I went up to my son's room, 11-year-old son, I just mentioned to him, like, yeah, uh, you know, please don't spend all your time in front of the computer tonight. You need to try to do some other traditional stuff like reading a book or, you know, playing with- the outside I play and the stuff. outside and Yeah, no, not outside. But then it's funny because, you know, the, talking about the, the tiers and the three tiers, but on, he was on his computer and then he had his tablet right there in front of the computer, which he wasn't using, but it was sitting there because he had been using it, his iPad, and then he had his iPhone <laughs> on top <laughs> yeah. of that. So he had his three tiers of computing, you know, right there, um, which is funny because a lot of us, not everybody, I know not everyone, but we all have our three tiers of personal computing, don't we? That's right. We do. do. Do you have? Do you have a? You obviously you have your computer. You have a. You probably have a smartphone, right? Yes. Yeah, I know you do because we text. And then, and do you have a tablet?
1: Oh, several. I think people. you've
0: mentioned it before, huh?
1: I have. I have a tablet that covers everything except the iOS. My my wife has the iOS stuff. Okay. She she's the Apple fan. And my daughter got um, a Mac. Uh, what was it uh, an iPad Mini for Christmas? Uh huh. So. Um, yeah, I, I, I actually I'm the I, Android and Windows tablet person myself. If
0: people, I don't have to be surprised, but I don't have an iPad, so I have an iPhone. I have my Mac, of course, but I have an Android tablet, which I like a lot. It's a Samsung Galaxy, yeah. and uh, but then my son I was talking about, he's got a uh, so he's got a PC, but then he's got an iPhone and iPad. Okay. And I see, my daughter, she's got a PC. She used to have a Nook, which was an Android-based tablet, and then she's got her Android phone. So she shouldn't, shouldn't have one of the tiers anymore. She doesn't, she doesn't need it. She's got a bigger, she's got a, it's not quite a phablet, but she's got a bigger Android phone. I like my Galaxy S5 and my... Oh, yeah? Th- oh yeah. My she's, Tab,
1: Tab 4, and I also have the, uh, like a, a Dell, Was it, the Latitude tablet that runs Windows. Yeah. Um, so I'm kind of covered there with the three sizes. Plus I have a, an old Galaxy Note 10 when they first came out. Huh. One of the first ones that had the built-in stylus, the, wow. the pressure-sensitive stylus. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. We're we're kind of a you know a house of technology. If we plugged everything at once, we would need to upgrade the circuit
0: breaker, you know, to 200 amps. And it's crazy all these computers because you know, uh, I was recently talking to my wife about, you know, it really is wasn't that long ago for all of us maybe, but, um, you know, okay, let me go and think back. There was a time, of course, when people didn't have computers, but we only had one computer in the whole house. It's right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> much it's less right. tablets and smartphones and any laptops. We had one computer. Yes. And there was always one geek in the
1: family using it and everybody else, uh, would, eventually, like, try to use it, right? Was that one of the kind of families you were in, or is everybody, like, jumping on board for
0: it, even back back then? Uh, well, the uh, the kids, mostly. Okay. You know, so... Well, no, I guess because right. I'm thinking about when we got a computer for the kids. So yeah, they didn't right. really care earlier than that, so... I'm, I'm only, thinking further back than you. Yeah, I'm thinking we probably stopped only having one computer in the house approximately 12 or 13 years ago. And then okay. that's when me and my wife both got our own laptops, and then... Yeah, and I think already by then we had gotten a, an older PC desktop for the kids. And then the, I had
1: my Commodore Amiga and my wife had her Commodore. Oh, yeah. Now,
0: Chris it's not counting vintage computers. Yeah.
1: So <laughs> since vintage, yeah. It yeah, was, I'm talking but, modern, you know, internet. We capable. had two in the family at least uh, at any time that we were actively using. So I guess we were a little more, um, you know, into the future. Uh, we were setting trends ourselves. Yeah. But And then the kids got old enough, we got an old computer somebody gave us, and we put kid games on it, so they yeah. had a the computer they shared. So there was three in the house, and that was in, like, 1998 or 99. Um, so, yeah, that... Yeah, that's about now, right. That's, now, what, now, that's you, what our if, kids
0: started off with. You can't,
1: you can't go through a household these days without finding a computing device, or at least, you know, two or three. The odds are probably very slim. You'll find less. Um, but, hey... That's just the way it is, and you know, eventually we will be talking about that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, we we should uh, should roll back in time again here.
0: And uh, what are we talking about today? What
1: are we talking about? Well, as you know, David, we have covered two of the three computers that are part of the personal computer trifecta. So far, we covered the Apple II yes. and the BEOSAG TRS-80 Model One. We have covered these computers in the order of their release date. Since the term trifecta denotes three of something, that leaves a third and final home computer system to re- be released in the same year as the others, the Commodore PET 2001.
0: Finally. Took a long time, huh? for us get to the third one, it the did. holidays. So it's what we've called the holy trinity of personal computing. So uh, the Commodore PET 2001 was the third in a line of what we refer to as the first true out of the box consumer computers. All three were introduced in 1977 and all three were paradigm changing. Arguably, these were the first home or educational computers that could be purchased, taken out of their boxes, set up, plugged in, and then used in some immediate productive way. One thing that made the Commodore PET 2001 unique from the other two was that it was fully an all-in-one computer. So in one combined unit, it had the computer, the screen, the keyboard, and a tape drive for input. By the end of 1977, the Apple I, Radio Shack, sorry, Apple II, Radio Shack TRS-80 Model 1 and Commodore PET 2001 had laid the path for the future of the personal computer. Sales of new and improved consumer computers, mostly with plastic cases, would rise and rise, while the sales of the once-dominant S100 hobbyist or business class computers would soon plateau then begin to decline. Yep, everything gets better,
1: and then the old stuff seems to get tossed away, only to be revived 25 or 30
0: years later. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, we're, we're trying to... just just a nice quick introduction. I'll say S-100 stayed stayed for a while, and there were other machines other than the, the Trinity and the S-100s, but, you know, that basically summarizes everything pretty well.
1: And the consumers shift their focus, and... You yeah, know, that was
0: the shift in the whole industry, I really... I, and y- I and you also have
1: to shake up the consumers, too, so... You know, having these out-of-the-box home computers shakes up consumers to to something new. You know, same thing happened with
0: the tablets, you know, and and, and cell phones as mm-hmm. personal computers. So I start things off in our uh, in our discussion of the Commodore PET 2001 with the system specs. So it had a one megahertz 6502. It came with either four or eight. Uh, get this right kilobytes kilo yes kilobytes yeah it had an 18 kilobyte rom which included basic 1.0, uh which did not support disk drives on the original 2001 it had discrete ttl video circuitry with a nine inch monochrome monitor uh blue phosphor on the original 2001 which had a 40 character by 25 display um no sound other than it says a single piezo, am I saying that right? Piezo, piezo beeper, piezo just like beeper. the
1: IBM PC had originally. Oh, yeah, just a little beeper.
0: Yeah, which is basically a what a binary beep, right? On or off, or square wave. Okay, um, an optional external speaker driven by an MOS sixty five twenty two CB two pin. It had two uh, MOS sixty five twenty PIA ports, an MOS sixty five twenty two VIA. Do you know what those stand for? What's yeah, the parallel peripheral interface
1: adapter. It might be parallel. VIA is, I think, the versatile interface adapter. Either way, both of these devices provided Mm I.O. communication between Mm -hmm. external peripherals and uh, input devices like uh, keyboards or maybe joysticks or, um, you know, like the 6522. It can be programmed to make pin 2 go up and down real fast to create sound. You know, pin 2 of the VIA. So that's what created the interfacing between the uh, computer and peripherals. And Apple used that too, I believe.
0: Okay. Then it uh, technically had two data set ports, which one was being used with the internal cassette. But then it also had one on the back, so you could connect another data set or data cassette. Um, It also had an IEEE 488, which was, I guess for all practical purposes at the time, it was like a high-speed serial connection it
1: was an industry standard at the time for communicating between uh, computers devices computing oh, okay. systems and devices uh, that required you know digital communications you know back and forth to, to pass data back and forth and then uh, its best feature a 69 key chiclet keyboard <laughs> yeah, it's certainly <laughs> you thought some other computers that we'll <laughs> discuss in in the future have weird keyboards that yeah. chiclet keyboard that was a cost-saving effort, if I recall, for, for Commodore, because right. It was going to be used, or was based on a calculator keyboard. Mm-hmm. They were that, a
0: calculator company.: Yep. So yeah, but it was a pretty bad keyboard.: They, they saved time. money, but hey, it's a computer.: It's one of those it, things where it was in your block.: to have It anything. was usable, so you couldn't, couldn't uh, you know put them down for that, but it, it certainly was a bad keyboard, and as we'll find out, it got replaced pretty quickly. So, um, so actually with the next revision of the 2001, which was called the N in 1979, uh, first, well, first they changed the keyboard and put a conventional full-size keyboard in it. They called it the NC, no chiclets. And well, and I think it's, to, yeah, it's so for new, it's new. the new 2001, new for 2001. Um, it also, they changed it to a standard green phosphor monitor. And then uh, they got rid of the built-in cassette recorder or the data set because, you know, in order to fit the keyboard in, they kind of had to do that.
1: Plus, you make more money selling it as an extra.
0: Peripheral. Yeah, plus you smarter anyway. Um, and then the European equivalent of the 2001 in was the CBM 3000 series, which there were a few different ones. Generally, the biggest difference in them were their RAM, and that that continues along in these series with like the um, like the next series, the 4000 series in 1980. There was the forty sixteen forty thirty
1: two and it had an extra u key so you could type words like color right
0: did it oh, the european one <laughs> no uh, <laughs> um so anyway, so then you had the four thousand like say four thousand series and eighty so these these are all again in the pet series um it had a larger twelve inch monitor hmm, excuse me, and it had a re- re- larger. go ahead,
1: twelve inch was larger
0: <laughs> yeah, the nine inch yeah. We're so used to what we got now. <laughs> <clears throat> Excuse me. And then it had a redesigned CRT controller, and then it cont- contained uh, enhanced BASIC 4.0, which is, was actually very significant in 1980. That was a much improved BASIC. Um, they later went on to have the 8000 series, which uh, the biggest difference there was it had it was 80 columns. So it was an 80 by 25 character display. It also standard, yeah. It also included sound. So it had a one-channel speaker for sound generation. And one thing interesting about that model was its backwards compatibility, it, it created something called uh, the killer poke. Yeah. So software that was programmed specifically for 40-column screens would be incompatible a lot of times on the 8000 series.
1: Would, it would actually cause the computer to um, burn itself up because of the nature of what that, that poke did to the computer. Really? Yeah, I didn't read that part. It would, they it call would... it kill or poke for a reason. Oh, I just thought it'd lock it up.
0: Is that the one that had the runaway stuff? Um... No, I'm not sure. I didn't really look into it that deep. I just I just thought that was kind of funny. Oh, you keep reading. I'll verify that. Okay. So um, so just continuing along, then in 1981, there was the SP-9000, or what is known as the Super Pet. And uh, it was unique that because it had both a 6502 processor and a Motorola 6809 microprocessor, and it had 96 kilobytes of RAM, which was quite a bit in 1981. It included that is quite a bit, yeah. Yeah, it included BASIC 4.0 and ROM, which ran in the 6502 mode, and then it also included on diskette uh, APL, COBOL, Fortran, Pascal, and a 6809 assembler. Um, which of course, then those all ran on the 6809 processor. Um, around the same time, they introduced the CBM2 line, or what a lot of collectors consider the B series. And um, you don't see a lot of these, they're fairly rare. They were not very successful and they were quickly discontinued by Commodore. And I want to mention the lastly, the in the line, which isn't really the Educator 64 in 1983. Actually, not a PET model, but essentially a Commodore 64 in a PET-styled all-in-one case made for the education market because it was tough and all-in-one. Then the PET was followed by uh, what we'll talk about down the road in uh, future episodes. Its successors, of course, were the VIC-20 in 1980, the Commodore 64 in 1982, the Commodore 128 in 1985, and then the Amiga 1000 in 1985.
1: Okay, you know, I and uh, some others. I and the rest.
0: The, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I did look up the,
1: the uh the killer poke. Yeah. Uh it it's kind of a s uh, a little bit of a, a snopes type story. Um it is the the poke apparently was what was believed to do a a disastrous behavior with the new video chip causing the the to, a, to causing it to destroy the pet CRT monitor, probably with something with a scan rate or something. Oh, of, did it not really? It's not believed that it ever happened, but apparently people are waiting for somebody to prove that it did happen to them. So it's a wives' tale. (laughs) Don't poke that; it'll blow up. Um, But there's people asking if you can confirm that the pet
0: has been killed by such poke.
1: They want to know. Yeah, I don't
0: see how a piece of code could start hardware. Well, it, it. you know, we we kind of saw
1: stuff like that when VGA on, on IBM compatibles started having different scan rates. Mm. If you can over-scan some of the earlier multi-scan monitors or, or, or monitors that couldn't support multi-scan, you can actually cause problems with the monitor by altering the scan rate. And If the monitor wasn't built well, it would not protect itself from an increase in a scan rate or something, and it could go bad. Um, but for the, for the pet, I can understand what they're talking about. It it obviously changes something with the video output, but can it destroy it? Yeah, yeah probably not. Uh, mm. I I seem to agree with what they say now that I read the specific details. Um, they do mention there are possible vulnerable pets, maybe maybe certain ones that were designed a certain way. You know, sometimes when they when a company makes a computer, they'll make some minor adjustments to to a design just to fix you know, consumer reported bugs. And that could be something, maybe something did happen in that sense. And maybe it was a problem that got fixed and you know, recalled and fixed and sent back out again. We don't know. Right. But yeah, you could destroy something with a killer poke if it alters the operation of something else, like a monitor. But I think the monitors on these pets are probably a little more robust. Mm-hmm. They weren't sensitive to a lot of changes like today's electronics.
0: So anyway, tell me all oh, about the peripherals.
1: I will. And I mean, lots of peripherals.
0: Actually,
1: yeah, they did. Um, a lot of self-branded peripherals. I don't know if they actually oh. made these themselves or
0: just you know put them together themselves. But um, I think they you were big. To, they were big on like all like doing everything in house. I think weren't they Commodore? As much as they could. Yes.
1: But they also, you know, they like to put their names on everything they do. So, um, because I think even some of their later printers were rebranded. Oh. Anyway, uh, other than tape recording or tape player or tape recorder for storage, you also had the ability to do disk drives. And Commodore had the 2031 single disk drive and the 4040 dual disk drive. Each drive stored 170K. Uh, on a five and a quarter inch disk, and were compatible to the future Commodore's fifteen forty one disk drive standards. So you could actually read these old PET disks in your, you know, in your new Commodore sixty four or even VIC twenty, in the fifteen forty and forty one series drives, um, and those are the only ones that were compatible with the the future uh, Commodores. Um, following disc drives came out through the original lifespan of various pet production models. You know, As the pet line grew, as you mentioned, all the different pet lines, these drives came out uh, to go along with them. There were the 8000 series disc drives, which had larger capacity uh, storage. The 8050 drive held 500K on a single side of a disc. That was quite a bit. Hmm. Uh, but not as much as the 8250, which held a whopping 1 meg on a dual-sided disc. That's a lot of space back in 19... We're still 1977, right? Um, and if you're one of those people still clinging to an 8-inch disc drive standard of the time, you could get the 8280 dual 8-inch eight disc drive. Boy, that must have taken a lot of space. Uh, that I store, didn't realize they made all that stuff. <laughs> I, I, see, I still think they probably put some stuff together from you know whatever they can grab and put together and mark it under the Commodore name, but still... Uh, Those 8 inch disk drives stored 500K on a single side of an 8 inch disk. Um, And for those with hardcore data storage needs, you could get the 9060 5 megabyte uh, hard drive or the 9090 7.5 megabyte hard drive. So there's plenty of storage uh, options available throughout the, you know, as the pet line grew depending on whether you wanted to hold on to newer or older technology or needed one or two disk drives
0: or needed to store a lot or a little onto a given space. Oh, okay. I'm looking at pictures, right? Yeah. These are just the pet ones for the lines of pets. Okay. Yeah. Duh. Cause there's the only numbers I'd ever ring out to me at 1540, 1541, 70, right? 71. Yeah. Yeah.
1: 1571 that came a little bit later. Um, Commodore also offered the 8024 printer, which supported 132 columns. So you could print, um, you know, most likely landscape on that. There was also a Commodore 8075 plotter. So I guess the PET could have been used for design and drafting and with a pen plotter, which uh, plotted out on large sheets of paper, uh, CAD designs. And... Since the PET also had the IEEE for, was it 488 or 448? I may have put the note down wrong here. Uh, The interface, the IEEE interface for peripherals, this opened up the option to purchase various third-party peripherals, which would most likely be up to the user to figure out how to output to those devices. At the time, you know, there was industry peripherals, and since the connection was compatible to the PET, somebody could theoretically take one of these industry devices and hook it up to the PET, and if they knew how to program it to talk to that device, they can make that device work. Hmm. Okay. So that's an awful lot of options for a computer that just came out on the scene. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the original PET with the IEEE interface would have those options right at the start. But Mm -hmm. the other Commodore-branded devices, they came out throughout the PET line.
0: It makes sense, too, because, of course, the companies made lots of money on those, those other peripherals. Oh, yeah. Always I mean, sell the extras for premium. Yeah, I mean, they, were, they cost a lot of money, too.
1: Um, yeah, printers were expensive and, and disk drives were expensive. Even the 1541 was expensive when it came out. So moving along, so we should talk
0: about the introduction. Yes. How did these come to fruition? So during the 1970s, Commodore competed with many other electronics companies selling calculators based on Texas Instruments, TI, chips. In 1975, TI increased the price of their components to the point where the chipset cost more than what they even sold one of their own calculators for. This almost immediately froze most of their competitors out of the marketplace. However, Commodore competitively responded to this by searching for a chipset they could purchase outright and they found one with the company MOS Technology which brought with it a valuable bonus the 6502 microprocessor which MOS was fiercely trying to bring to market the acquisition also brought with it Chuck Petal and his Kim One single board computer kit based on the 6502 which we covered uh, okay. in a past episode got some brains along with this so at Commodore Petal convinced Jack Tramiel uh, who was in charge of Commodore, that calculators were a dead-end market. So Tramiel commanded Pedal, along with engineers Bill Seller and John Figgins, to create a computer in six months for the Consumer Electronics Show.
1: And you know, and Jack would command people to do that. That's just the <laughs> kind of person he was, or else you'll be suffering a Jack attack.
0: <laughs> That's why I use that word, commanded. It just seemed appropriate. So... Uh, the Consumer Electronics Show, which is also known as CES, which the CES 2015 is about to come up here, I think. I haven't uh, watched the news that head? much. Is it? Maybe. I, see I think Twitter's alight
1: Twitter's, uh, with it unless certain people got I, to see this. I knew it was first. coming
0: or it's here, but I haven't really watched the news in real detail recently. So the PET 2001 was announced at the winter CES in January. Well, there you go. So uh, 1977. And the first 100 units were shipped later that year in October. That's a yeah. It was a big, long time later, wasn't it?
1: They probably had to put it together <laughs> after showing a mock, <laughs> yeah. you know, like like oh, didn't the TRS eighty work that way too? Yeah, was it was a of cardboard worked. pet. Yeah, at the CES.
0: <laughs> Um and then the pet remained in a backorder status for for months after uh, they even started shipping the first units. Backorder, see, that's actually pretty good for the manufacturer to
1: be in a backorder status, as long as they're pumping them out, they know they have the interest
0: in it. So let's talk about the company just a little bit. Commodore was founded in Toronto in 1954 as the Commodore Portable Typewriter Company by Polish immigrant and Auschwitz survivor, Jack Trammell. By the late 1950s, an onslaught of Japanese products forced most other North American typewriter companies to go out of business, but Trammell saw a trend and started producing adding machines. They remained successful and changed their name to Commodore Business Machines Incorporated, or CBM. In the late 1960s, Japan Japan again started impeding on Commodore's market, so Tremel traveled to Japan in order to try and learn how to better compete. Instead, he returned with the idea of producing electronic calculators. He had done it again, and the company prospered. Unfortunately, by 1975, Texas Instruments, the main supplier of electronic calculator parts, entered the market, introducing calculators that were priced less than Commodore could even build them. So Jack Trammell turned his big ship again, and the company began producing computers,
1: The company
0: company again prospered, but by January 1984, Trammell resigned after years of intense disagreement with the chairman of the board, Irving Gould. Gould replaced Trammell with Marshall F. Smith, a steel executive who had had no experience with computers or consumer marketing. Even though Commodore introduced what was arguably one of the best computers on the market for the price, the Amiga, the company never really prospered again and started a long, slow decline not in product quality, but in sales and success. The Amiga quickly fell behind its two real competitors, the IBM PC and the Macintosh. And we will be covering Amiga more in a future episode. Can't wait. Commodore declared bankruptcy on April 29th 1994. And um, there's a link in the show notes, too, because it's worth uh, looking at the uh, what happened to the company name in any case and acquisitions of the company. Uh, what would you call that? The it got split up diced up uh, well the you know the the patents and the trademarks and the name the intellectual it, property it, there you go it's been moved around over the years a number of times so we could do a, show, a whole show on that but uh, there's a uh, good content on wikipedia that talks more about that and also want to mention so in july of 1984 uh after Tremel had left um commodore
1: Left? Oh, okay. Well, well, that's a nice way of saying
0: it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't say left Atari, but he purchased Atari's consumer division, which included the console and home computer departments, uh, from Warner Communication, and more on that in a later Atari episode as well. Basically, he then turned around and started competing very heavily with uh, Commodore.
1: Yeah, and it, it's a good story. It's a sad story, and there are... Um, there, there's media out there which talk about the, the end of Commodore, and I think it's best to save that for a future podcast because it's more relevant to the stuff that happened later than the Commodore PET. But it, yeah. it's, it's kind of bittersweet. But, you know, just the creation of the PET actually started up some legacies in the home computer industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, uh, the Commodore PET opened up some alternative ideas in personal computing. For instance, um, graphics on a personal computer at the time were rather resource-intensive, especially if bitmap screens were involved in the process. So what Commodore did was introduce a rudimentary set of character graphics. These graphics allowed the user to create simple screen designs using shapes that were the same size and area as a regular ASCII character on the screen. Uh, These character blocks included shapes such as uh, the four playing card suits, uh, half blocks, quarter blocks, and angled lines. Uh, these shapes made it easy to create simple, full-screen designs without having to manage thousands of individually set pixels. The user could type the characters directly from the keyboard. And all of the special graphics were mapped into the 256-character ASCII set. Uh, ASCII, what does that stand for? American Standard uh, Computer Information Interchange or something like that? Mm, it's, something like it's, that. It's a, it's a set of numbers that represent characters used on computers. Anyway... Uh, the resulting set of characters that were mapped, you know, these pet characters are mapped into it were colloqu- colloquially called Petski instead of ASCII, named for the pet computer. Commodore used the same character enhancement on the remaining line of 8 bit computers that they developed in the future. And I think uh, there were other computers after the pet that kind of took the same idea. I think Timex Sinclair or S- yeah, Sinclair was one of them that I think, so. I think rolled off that. So it, it started some trends until graphics became easier to work with and there was resources available to do it. Um, another important legacy sparked by the Commodore PET was the vertical integration aspect of its creation and in the home computer market. Um, in many of the previous personal computers we've discussed so far, companies would typically design their computer systems around third party components. This included the CPU itself and much of the other supporting components. Next to RAM, at the time, CPUs were a large part of the manufacturing cost because they needed to be sourced from component manufacturers. The same was true for custom ROMs and other specialty components. As you mentioned before, David, Commodore bought MOS technologies. Not only only was Commodore the legal manufacturer of the 6502 at this point, but they also used MOS facilities to create many of the other components in the PET. This allowed commodore to price the pet very competitively yet still earn decent profits what's more guess which computer manufacturer uh, was also using the 6502 as its cpu i
0: apple. know yeah you do <laughs> yeah apple and atari, you know, I, atari i think at least a couple of other ones such i can't oh there may have been some moment, other ones
1: yeah like single boards and stuff like that but those are so,
0: definitely the primary ones yeah yep yeah. so basically commodore was selling cpus to its competitors so all Apple II's and, and in fact all Atari eight bits, yeah, they they could yeah. only
1: source their sixty five hundred two from one one company, or you know that would be the MOS, uh, unless they got it through some other, you know, deal through um, you know third party or whatever. Either way, it, it sourced its way from MOS Technologies. Hmm. Yeah, and, um, the Commodore PET, on another piece of legacy, the Commodore PET encouraged a number of people in Canada to create a subscription-based independent magazine for pet owners. Uh, The magazine was called The Transactor. Initially targeting pet user groups, The Transactor was geared towards Commodore computer hacking. In essence, it gave the turnkey home computer owner insight into the hardware hacking experiences of computer owners in the the earlier years of computing, like those who would build their own machines from the homebrew computer clubs. Those Mm -hmm. were computer hackers. Well, The Transactor allowed people who bought these, you know, turnkey systems to kind of understand and learn about that recent history of computer hacking. The transistor or Transactor had an 11-year run through a total of three publishing companies and provided hardware insight into the later Commodore computer models. So they ran from, I believe, 78 to 89. Okay. And that's that's quite a length, and it was you know they dealt with just getting your hands dirty in your in your uh commodore computer,
0: you know one thing we haven't talked a whole lot about, which isn't really the focus of our show but is uh you know magazines, which um obviously by this point in time um you know nineteen seventy seven a little bit later than that you know once these three companies came into play, so I don't know if it happened in seventy seven you really start seeing you know magazines dedicated to these platforms sounds uh, like
1: a special episode david
0: yeah and then and then obviously later on with the atari and later on with the macintosh and pc and stuff but um i guess by 1977 you had Byte and you had rom maybe and and a few other ones and Byte
1: magazine would have been a really good source for ieee devices uh for your pet
0: yeah but yeah, I think we should do a computer mag. But it, I wanted to, this magazine I'm about to mention didn't come out till much later with the Commodore 64, but it, it is my all-time favorite computer uh, history at this point magazine, and it's called Info64. Have we ever talked about that? No, you we haven't. I? I, I might have one or
1: two issues I've acquired uh, in the recent past, but... I, I really didn't get into that too much. I was a compute person or compute. Well, I,
0: I came into it secondhand because a very early computer I acquired an SX sixty four. I uh, I got it from the original owner with a big box of stuff and and it had a couple of issues of that Info sixty four in it and it was really uh, it just really it was great because it was entirely made on Commodore uh, computers sixty fours at the time with Commodore software and comes Commodore. Commodore, what am I saying? Commodore, you know, printers and all. and it, and it um, Oh, okay. So and, it showed up in 24-pin dot matrix. No, no. Then they, they would they would print it all out, and then they'd, they'd use a real printer to duplicate it and make the magazine. But it was just really well done, and it was kind of more grassroots-like, but it was still professional. And it was a big inspiration for me when I started making my newsletter, Historically Brewed. And they tried to turn it into more like a magazine. So it sort of played an inspirational role. But, yeah, I just like it a lot. But, yeah, we should talk okay. about that later on.
1: Yeah, it sounds like they were able to take their their discs and send them off to the, uh, that, the publisher, and they would read it and turn it. Or maybe No, no, I think what sp-
0: they did is, like I said, they um, they generated everything on Commodore, uh, and things that were C- Commodore compatible. They weren't necessarily, like, had to be Commodore made the printers, I don't think. But then they would take that. So I think they printed everything out, and then they took that to a print shop, where they would, like, um, you know, they take a picture of it. Or how do they do that? Make a plate or whatever. Yeah,
1: or they get some interns to do things and
0: okay. Yeah, well, however they do that, it's like when I made my newsletter, um, I used copying machines, and then I finally on the fifth uh, issue I did a like a two color um, cover, and so I had the so I made it on my computer and had to print it out into a two color separation, and then you know then I took it to a print shop and they. I assume they, they scanned it, right? Sort of made a copy of it or took a picture of it. And oh, then yeah, they made the definitely possible, yeah. Yeah, and then they made the whatever you call it, to actually print it, you know, on a printing printing press. Oh, that big yeah, that big roller printing press or whatever it is. That was exciting, I remember. Got my first printed covers.
1: And that fresh that fresh book smell. <laughs> that new book smell.
0: So tell us about emulation. Emulation Have you, you done any Commodore emulation lately?
1: Uh Yes, actually, I, I have for that uh, retro challenge to try to get Elite working on an emulator um, so I can actually video record the action. Um, and the emulator I'm using for that also is called VICE, V-I-C-E, which stands for, for Versatile Commodore Emulator. The I, I guess, is just there to make it look good. Um <laughs> VICE emulates a number of Commodore 8-bit computers, including many of the various PET models. It also does the VIC-20, the Commodore 64, the S6-64, and other variations. Um, and VICE just works well. It's convenient on Windows because the, you just run the emulator executable for what you want to run, point the interface or point the thing to where you have your disk drive uh, images stored and it does the rest from there. Um, it, it works really nice. And VICE is available for Windows, uh, OS X or OS I still get that wrong, uh, Linux, and another a number of obscure devices and systems. Um, I have this handheld gaming machine called a, um, what is it, uh, I haven't touched it for so long, but it's a little Linux-based handheld gaming machine. They actually have VICE for that. I can actually run Commodore 64, um, games on this little handheld device because somebody copied VICE over to <laughs> this environment. Um, it's it's open source, I believe. Um, it's free to get and we'll put the link to the show notes, but I there are other emulators out there for like the Commodore 64 and stuff, but I don't think there are many other ones for PET that do such a good job as VICE
0: does. Hmm. I did just find some mentioned here for Macintosh, um, Commodore. Oh, these are all Commodore 64 emulators in this yeah. case. Okay. That,
1: that's the hot one. The GP2X, yeah. that's that handheld device. I, I actually have it laying behind my computer here, uh, plugged in and charging. It's called a GP2X, and it's just a handheld um, Linux-based game system but it plays emulators and vice is one of them so yeah i could play commodore 64 games but i couldn't play pet stuff on it for one pet really, kind of really needs a keyboard
0: mm. yep looks like vice is really the, your only choice for the most part
1: yeah for pet when you get to the other commodore line there are more choices but i still stick with vice until it stops working for me i i stick with Oh, it. it looks
0: like vice is available for the mac
1: oh yes it's available for a lot of systems Okay. It's also available, if you have it, Minix operating system. Wow. <laughs> it's also available for the Commodore Amiga. Really? Really. That's pretty uh, neat. It'll probably run best on, like, a higher-end Commodore Amiga, like the 4000 or a beefed-up 1200. Um, but I don't know how well it'll work on the uh, 500 or, uh, or the 2000. I don't, just don't know if there's enough umph there to do it. That's crazy. But it's popular, so it's out there. And that's, that's, that's my go-to emulator, just because it, it, it just runs. It it's, emulates disk drives down to the hardware level. You know, It emulates the whole hardware level, including all the idiosyncrasies of some of the disk drives. Uh, it can even interface with external real disk drives with the, if you have the right hardware hooked up to your computer.
0: Very good. I have to check it out. I think I found the right download here.
1: We'll have to uh, see if anybody wants to get a pet. What can they do and how much will it cost them? Yeah, let's check it out. Did you find some good stuff? I found some stuff. (laughs) There really isn't much out there, but let's go with yours first and see what you got.
0: Yeah, I think I found, I guess, what is the most expensive one that has sold recently. So I decided to choose that. If somebody really wanted to collect the elite version this is the one they would get right kind of surprising so it's it's a uh, title is rare original commodore pet 2001 series vintage computer blue frame and sticker It sold on november the 11th for 1426 dollars with free shipping so that's kind two of two bids that's kind of interesting yeah wow so uh i wonder what um so you just quickly look at the pictures it it looks pretty nice it
1: does look nice and clean
0: yeah it's got a good really the sharp kitchen, the kitchen in the background might not be as clean but the <laughs> the pet certainly is and wow. you can pop the hood on it we had really discussed that new electronics just from this picture it looks that clean it has the cons- cassettes and some other little stuff and with you it really
1: get a good idea what that keyboard looks like
0: so let's see what it says here up for auction is a very rare vintage Commodore PET 2001 computer in excellent working condition. This is the original version with the blue screen and sticker. This computer was well cared and prized by my grandfather, a computer programmer and electronics expert. In addition to this very rare computer, this lot includes PET user manual, first edition, in good condition. Dr. Daly's Software Library Volume One, PET Personal Computer Guide, PET CBM Personal User oh, Computer Guide, rather second edition. I will have this computer professionally packaged by the UPS store. Okay, sit so with insurance, that probably costs a good 100, $150. Bucks. Um, I don't know. Still pretty surprised it went for $1,426. Yeah, but look, so. free standard shipping, so... Uh, well, you know, again, I, let's just say with the packing and the shipping, let, let's, right, let's, let's say it's
1: $300. It, if you use UPS to pack the stuff, they'll double box it. Um,
0: so, yeah, there's going to be a lot of... Cost so that's still you know eleven hundred bucks. You're you're saying the computer's worth eleven twelve hundred dollars. That's, that's I'm surprised at that. that it really, is. Am. It,
1: it does look clean, so it it might not be. He may have gotten a, a premium for it. Yeah. But I considering how clean it is. I mean, this really looks yeah. nice, and I like I, the close up picture of the keyboard. You can really see the space bar on this keyboard, which is basically two keys wide. It's just it's almost a joke, but that is the joke of this line of. Computer. You know, This 2001 line is the keyboard itself, you know, where the return key is, and you can see the special graphics characters that I was talking about, how they work.
0: Mm-hmm. Sometimes like, it can be the right time, too, you know, maybe the right time of the year. I don't know. Pet yeah, 2001 8
1: kind of stuff, right? Um, guy shows it
0: fired up, and there it is Commodore Basic. It's a good auction, it's a good auction. All right, so then I, um as my second one, I chose a uh, kind of a more common uh, – on the opposite of that, I want to try to find one I thought was affordable but really nice. So this one is described as a vintage computer Commodore PET 8032. So this is that later 80-column, uh, you know, full 12-inch screen PET Yes, you 32K. Yeah, so – yeah, so, um, and it sold for – on November 8th for $142.50. Which, I guess, to me, it would have been $45 shipping. Pretty pretty reasonable. And uh, yeah. I think that's pretty good. Looks like somebody had stickers on the keys, and some of them came off, but they never removed the residue. Oh, I see. Yeah. But otherwise, it pr- looks pretty decent. <laughs> hey, oh, I see some other little things. The person
1: but... who sold it knows how to write basic programs. 10 print. Please buy me. 20 go to 10. <laughs> <fine>. <laughs> well, it worked. <laughs> There's a program that, that uh, earned him $142.50 plus whatever's left over from shipping. Um, and that seems about right. But you got to consider even that's, th- that's, that's a
0: 35-year-old computer.
1: You know, I have never really been close to a pet computer. No. I may have been near one at the last VCF, and I'll make sure I go and take a closer look at one at the next VCF. But I'm a big Commodore person, the only other time I kind of remember being even close to a pet or even touching one was when I was out getting my Vic 20 um, back in in the early 80s because I, I think the store there also sold pets. Um, but it's just this one's just out of reach for me. Yeah, would I spend 142.50 on it? Yeah, would I wanted to spend 142.50 and then another near 50 dollars shipping? Yeah, right. I would have been on the fence because I I'd be very I could only get myself one. I don't think I can spend money on on more than one and i have to really decide which one i want uh, okay. the, the one here might be good enough for what i need it's a later model so it has more of the extras that i'd probably want in it anyway so i guess if i had 200 dollars to blow on something uh, and i wanted a pet now i would probably look for something like this in this price range
0: What's interesting is at the very bottom he says, "Please note, I sell these computers as historical artifacts, not working machines." While this machine happens to turn on, it may or may not turn on when you finally receive it. It's meant to be purchased by a collector, not an active user. Okay, but you know, okay, that's fair. Yeah, you wonder if I wonder if that hurt hurt its retail value at all, though. It's uh, I, I don't know that a lot of that's subjective. Some people might
1: like think. I really need this part or this component of it really bad, so I'm just going to buy it all and have spare parts. You know, mm-hmm. that's I, I've done that before in the past, where I'll spend a little extra something because uh, it's there, it's now, it's not that much over what I'd be willing to spend, so I'll just bite the bullet and, and do it, and um, then I have spare parts that just take up space later because I never touch it again. Yeah. Now, my auctions. What do you got? I, <laughs> I got a pet that doesn't work. Um, it, and for some reason, I can only find stuff from Great, Great Britain or with Great Britain prices,
0: even on the U.S. Oh, I China saw this one a. with the screen. What happened yeah, to the screen?
1: It looks like somebody, it probably popped in the back and air got in. It, it, the, the vacuum oh. left. And, and that's usually what happens to the phosphors when, when it gets a, a sudden air leak. A decomp- or not decompression, it's actually a recompression. Because it's already... Uh, a vacuum so air sucks it in and destroys the phosphorus if it's uh quick enough, and this just goes to show that. And you can see on the keyboard here all those special characters, too, um, on, on the front of the keyboard, the CBM model 4032 computer for parts are not working, it, they do say it. It powers up and makes a nice beep, but the, <laughs> and they say, this, I'm quoting this verbatim, but the screen's completely screwed, so I <laughs> don't know how well it functions. Um, so it was sold to me as working, but was ruined in transit. Okay, so this guy's trying to get some of his money back, um, you know, as is sale, but it's sold for the equivalent of $73 US, or $74 US, so even in its condition, it has
0: a, a value um, so if you knew what you're doing, would it be that hard to put some other 12-inch black and white TV tube probably, in there? The tube
1: is probably it's probably something Commodore did not manufacture on their own, so they probably sourced that tube from somewhere. Yeah, and it's probably a standard uh, green phosphor tube. So yeah, somebody could probably replace that tube rather easily. They could almost take a green monitor from almost any other. Device of the era and and swap it, yeah, there might be a few that are incompatible, but I don't think they made that many variations of a green phosphor tube, so yeah, if somebody had that, and if they could find a tube for twenty or thirty bucks and put it in there, um, they could probably get this working again. Not a task for me, no, and it wouldn't be a task for me either, but if I saw this pet at a at, like, a, a ham fest or electronics flea market of some sort for 20 bucks, I would probably buy it. Yeah. And consider that a project. But in order for me to make that project work for what I want it to do, I'm going to need some decent storage. So, my next eBay auction that I picked is the Commodore
0: Pet Disk Drive 4040. Yeah, no, that's not something I've ever seen in real life. I mean, the older Commodore drives, I don't yeah. think so. Maybe I haven't passing it. It's always nice
1: to have, you know. The, cuz the cassette's okay but having disk drives even with vintage computers it's just going to be faster and this is a this is a dual drive system drive 0 drive 1 uh this is also from um you know I guess from uh, uh yeah from fairham united kingdom uh, sh- shipping doesn't even list the shipping costs anyway this is a typical commodore dual disk drive box It it has a boxy look. You can't sit it on top of the pet. You can't sit it underneath the pet. It sits off to the side of the Mm -hmm. pet. And it has two five and a quarter inch disk drives. And what was it? The 4040 was the um, 170K drives? I think so. Um, So, but this will work for you. You This is it. But they're not cheap. Uh, The equivalent price is $184 US. Now, part of this pricing might be the European market. But the fact that I couldn't find many of these even in the U.S. on eBay shows how rare they are. And I guess if this might be a good price even with shipping to get it into the U.S.
0: Hmm. Yeah, because you definitely don't see these very much. Nope. But there are adapters, I believe, that can go from
1: the IEEE interface to the 1541 Um interface so you could use a later model commodore 1541 drive with a pet
0: but you'd have to have this adapter that converts the signals cbm isn't it funny they put commodore cbm both
1: yep that way you won't be confused and they got their got their bases covered well the cbm was a model right commodore Yeah, you know, that's right cbm and the commodore business machine but they use the term cbm as part of the nomenclature
0: all right. We have any more? Or is this it for the show? No, I guess that's it. All right. Yeah, you know, at the opening of the show, we talked about what we've been up to. I got really sick, too. So my voice only recently cleared up. And then I, in the fact, us doing our show, I kind of felt like, oh, my voice is kind of cracking and, I and just, stuff. I was just rip roaring to go because I wanted to get this episode started a week earlier,
1: if I recall. <laughs> <You're> right. Yeah. <laughs> Let's track a time right away.
0: Which, um, yeah, because the show's going to come out tomorrow. This is Thursday. Yeah, this past weekend, I was really ill. And that really did a job on me trying to um, do that audio stuff. I mean, first oh, okay. off, I was just sick the whole weekend. And then I did go to work on Monday, but I was just really bad off. And my and voice. If
1: you record yourself for any reason, your voice is Actually, awful. my
0: voice, it feels like all of a sudden it was much better yesterday. I don't know. It seems like it's come back a little bit. My voice sounds real scratchy. So, anyway. It didn't sound too different from my my Oh no. (laughs) There you go. Didn't (laughs) didn't sound like a uh, we gotta start doing our podcast first thing in the morning instead of at night. Oh that's
1: it. Yeah, with fresh coffee.
0: Oh, that Uh, would be great. What do we have breakfast?
1: That's right. We can have a brunch segment.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What's new with you? Well, the the eggs are cooked over easy, the sausage (laughs) is nice and hot, the bacon it smells good, just like grandma's house. That's right. (laughs) Coffee's
1: fresh. I had some good bacon at a... um, uh, Every year, December 31st, a friend of mine, his wife, has a birthday, but they also have a shrimp and sangria party. (laughs) I don't eat shrimp, but they do have other stuff there. And somebody, at least one person, always brings a bacon snack. And (laughs) somebody brought bacon... We can always get bacon wrapped around filet, little niblets. Yeah. Like hors d'oeuvres size. But somebody brought bacon on a stick, and it was bacon that they took and put on wooden skewers, and then they dredged it in, um, what is it, um, brown sugar. And on, on some of them, they sprinkled a little bit of cayenne pepper, then they put those in the oven and let it bake. <laughs> they were absolutely delicious. I I had at least five or 600 of them. And... Uh, I was thinking, I can't wait till next year, because <laughs> so, I didn't get the recipe exactly how they did it, because I know if I tried it, I'll screw it up, but it was really good. They
0: did something I, like it, that at my um, my company's Christmas party, or holiday party, um, last month, and um, I'm not sure how the bacon was, Yes, you know, so obviously it was cooked, so it was like cooked bacon, really high quality, good stuff. I think but you can then- actually
1: bake bacon in an oven, but... You have some. You need to catch those drippings.
0: Yeah, do you know that's how we cook bacon here? Here at the house, we oh, never we okay. never pan it anymore because it spits all over the place. We just um, I we, use a microwave. Oh yeah, it works. Uh, oh wait, back to the Christmas party though. Yeah, it, go ahead. it was cooked and it, it was similar to what you're describing. It Wasn't on a stick though. It was like piled up into like sort of a design on plates, and you would, you know, like the other hors d'oeuvres, you'd come and use little tongs and put it on your plate. Yeah. but it was sort of like. Yeah, I'm not sure. It was like... Sweet and savory. Sort of sweet and also seasoned. Yes. It wasn't just bacon, but it was, it was really good. Um, before we get off the bacon topic, though, just in closing, we recently bought some bacon that is... Uh, darn, it was uncured, and it didn't have any uh, sugar. So, most obviously, most bacon is cured, and it's cured with sugar. So, um, people that are on a uh, a paleo diet... They tried to cut all sugar out of their diet. Okay. And so, anyway, so this was uncured bacon um, and no sugar in it. And and it was actually really good. Is it slab bacon? I... I couldn't tell you more than that other than it was, like, organic and really, you know, it was, okay. it was kind of expensive at Whole so Foods. I buy
1: slab bacon. I go right to the butcher section, and I buy the bacon that's under the counter. I don't buy that prepackaged stuff. Yeah, well, this uh, f- stuff is cured. But I never really checked if the slab bacon was cured or not, but it takes – I think – I'm
0: pretty bacon. sure it is because okay. most bacon is, most and hams it and all that. much,
1: if not less, than the prepackaged stuff these days. So, yeah, you know, sure enough, I'll go – I'll get my ba- – I'll get two pounds of bacon when I go to the grocery Store and i always laugh every time they say well it's a little over two pounds are you okay with that and i just stare at them like it's bacon
0: but you're asking that question <laughs> let me you know so we've actually indulged a little recently on some expensive meats not that we're that big of meat eaters but uh just to stay on this topic one more moment i sure. just i, I want to mention uh, do you like a do you like a good burger oh yeah okay well so so we bought again at whole foods um we bought some grass fed beef, and this stuff is ten dollars a pound, okay, which is almost Yikes. crazy, right but um, I guess it's like i want to say it's ninety per you know ten percent fat or a little bit less than that, but it's 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 like the most premium organic grass fed you know we go we we talk sweet to the cows every morning. And <laughs> <They> read good <laughs> stories to them. Yeah. <laughs> we tuck them in at night um, <laughs> and kill them gently. But I got to tell you, this—these are some of the best hamburgers I've ever made. We've ever made ourselves at the house. That it really, it really—you could taste the difference. It was really fantastic. So think about it. That's crazy—ten dollars a pound. But if you make four quarter-pound nice patties, or let's say you make three third-pound patties. You're still, you know, you put nice other premium ingredients. You're still only looking at like five bucks for a really premium burger per person.
1: And you know what I'm true. saying?
0: And yeah. this was really awesome tasting.
1: And Yeah, and I, I would go out to like uh, um, Red Robin or Ruby Tuesdays. and Yeah, uh, you'd pay a lot more than 10 that. Ten bucks, yeah.
0: Exactly. That's All true. right, better close this right. out.
1: Yeah, and I think we're getting a little off
0: topic.
1: <laughs> <laughs> We just made all the listeners hungry, maybe, um, <laughs> yeah. or we lost all the uh, vegans. Anyway, um, next show and, uh, next show is going to be show 10. We're up to two digits. Uh, we will be up to two digits, and it will be released on Friday, January 23rd. We will announce the next computer that we will be covering on both Twitter and Facebook, so please follow along. Find our evolving guide and all of our show notes at historyofpersonalcomputing.com. Send feedback to feedback at historyofpersonalcomputing.com because we would really love to receive your email or audio comment. Please send us your high quality photos of the machines we've covered. We are looking forward to featuring them on our site. Lastly, tell somebody about us. Please write a review on iTunes or help us spread the word with Facebook, Google Plus, or Twitter.
0: Perhaps you're in a specialty discussion group. Tell them.
1: That's it. For or how about stuff some stuff? other
0: up and coming social network?
1: Yeah, we may even have more. Like Uh, (laughs) that's it for this episode David have you given thanks
0: for that old computer today amen brother (laughs) (laughs) bye bye see you later